0: Uh, Tonight, as we're looking at Mark 6, 1 through 6, uh, Jesus does not ask another question to those who ask him questions, or ask questions about him, rather, in this text. And he doesn't directly answer them. Uh, He just stands amazed at their unbelief. And so it's it's different altogether. His response is kind of a non-response, in a way. Uh, So we're going to look at that and what that means for us tonight. Uh, Let's pray first and then we'll read the passage and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. And um, actually, before we pray, I want to pitch fall conference some more because it will change your life or at least you won't be able to get the time back. Um, (laughs) Fall conference is such a good time and today is the last day you can sign up. And guys, if the money is a problem for you, it's $115, 115. Uh, If that is a problem for you, please let me know. And we will make that not a problem anymore. Uh, But please let me know if you want to go this weekend, and we can get you signed up tonight. Esther told me that we can have her computer out here to register you uh, when we're done with large group here in a little while. And I can tell you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, It's going to be a great time with a lot of fun and a lot of good speakers from RUFs around Virginia uh, at the other uh, schools here in Virginia. Uh, Okay, now let's pray, and then we'll talk about the Bible. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us together here tonight, and um, thank you for your spirit who reveals you to us in the scriptures, and thank you for your son. We pray that you would reveal him to us tonight. We pray uh, that you would make us more like him, You would help us to understand your gospel more and follow you more closely. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Dylan, I tried to make the prayer go long enough for you to sit down, but it was just like this close, you know. I didn't quite make it. I'm sorry, is that me? I'm totally kidding. I like Dylan. Okay, cool. That's good. It's not that funny anyway. Um, Okay. So let's read Mark 6, 1 through 6. Uh, He, being Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Um, okay, so as we've been saying this semester... Uh, we're looking at the questions people ask Jesus Himself or ask about Him, or that Jesus Himself asks others, and, and what the responses are to those questions. Um, essentially, you know, there, if, if we're just going to sum these set of questions up, this set of questions up into one question, it's it's basically just isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter from Nazareth? But I think what this passage gets at is some other questions that maybe we have today. And I think uh, two of those, at least, are these. Isn't Jesus just a dude? Uh, And I'll explain what I mean by that as we go on. Isn't he just a guy from Nazareth? And can I have it all? Can I follow Jesus and have an easy life? I think that's one of the other questions that this text answers for us. And I'll show you how we get there. I will attempt to, uh, how we get those questions. Um, So isn't Jesus just a dude like us? Uh, Probably one of your favorite songs from 1995, which you remember when you were negative five years old, was uh, by Joan Osborne. And it starts out like this. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And then there are a lot of yeahs and other verses. Um, and maybe you're more familiar with the Dr. Evil version. Or probably not, judging by no one laughing at that. Uh, okay, so anyway, what if God was just like one of us? Okay, I, I don't mean to cast like any uh, aspersion on the song or say that like I know the intent of it. I'm not criticizing the song. But I think... Uh, Joan Osborne's words there kind of summarize what's going on here in this passage with these people from Jesus' hometown, which is Nazareth. Uh, uh, So again, that that just kind of summarizes uh, what they're asking about Jesus. So we see that Jesus is God, but they say, how does this guy uh, do these things? Where did he get all this stuff from? Like, isn't he just from Nazareth? Isn't he just a carpenter like one of us? He's nothing special. Why does he, why does he think he can teach like this? Like, he doesn't have a degree. He didn't follow a rabbi. Uh, he didn't go to get formal training. Who does he think he is to come in here and, and talk like this with whatever message he's been preaching to them on this Sabbath day while he was in the synagogue? And so at first it says that they, they start out being astonished. Uh, that's not necessarily positive or negative, but they're just kind of surprised and taken aback at what this guy is telling them. This guy that maybe some of them grew up with and uh, bought furniture from or something like that, who just seemed like a dude for all their lives. Um, so in their familiarity with him, they just kind of write him off in such a way that he wouldn't even be able to prove himself, right? It would take a lot for Jesus to be able to prove himself to these, these people, pr- probably. I have to think if they're just saying like, well, we see what he's teaching and this is pretty surprising. And we've heard about the miracles that he's doing, but like, what? Like, this is the guy from around the corner. I've eaten lunch with this guy. Um, I remember in third grade when like his toe just about fell off playing kickball or something, right? Like he's just a person like us. And so this is pretty weird for them and they just go ahead and write him off because they're familiar with him. Uh, I think we have to wonder why didn't Jesus just prove himself to them? Why doesn't he just do something like amazing and say, guys, told you, I'm son of God. Well, I think we have to ask, would they have believed him anyway? Would they have believed him even if he had done something really, really special? He taught, he healed, and they didn't believe that. So what did they want? What exactly did they want from him? What could have proved who he was to them? Uh, In much of Mark's gospel, uh, when Jesus gets questions like this about his identity and, uh, or when he's identified by demons that he's casting out, he kind of keeps his identity a secret. And in much of Mark's gospel, this is related to the false expectations that people had about the Messiah. So in Jesus' time, a lot of people thought that the Messiah that God had promised was going to come and liberate them Uh, in a short spell from Roman oppression. And and again, through much of Mark's gospel, he he kind of refuses to be recognized in that way. Uh, Physical liberation is something that is still yet to come. Jesus doesn't want people to think that he has come to free them from the Romans when what he's actually come to do is take care of their really big problems, which is them. He hasn't come to save them from the Romans. He's come to save them from themselves and consequently from the wrath of God. And so through much of this gospel, Jesus kind of holds back on fully revealing who he is. He wants them to understand that he hasn't come to set all things right yet. He's come to deal with their sin. Okay, but here it seems like something else is going on other than just this like secrecy idea that Jesus has in trying to correct people's ideas about the Messiah. He doesn't correct anybody here. Uh, He he doesn't do anything to challenge them on their idea of the Messiah. He doesn't prove anything. He just marvels at their unbelief. So something else is going on, and I think it has to do with the nature of the sort of doubt that's here. I I like this. Um, This was a challenging... uh, passage to kind of understand how it speaks to us today in some ways. But I think it's easy enough to kind of identify a group of people here that has always existed that I would call skeptics. Right? There are these people that are really familiar with Jesus in some ways and yet don't know him at all, truly. And they're really skeptical of who he is and what he's come to do and what he says he can do. And so they express this unbelief. They're questioning, like, who, who does this guy think he is? We've always known him. He's nothing special. Um, and one of the ways that they do that, as they get at this idea of, uh, isn't Jesus just a guy? Well, that's actually kind of the way that they doubt. They sort of introduce this funny way of just writing him off from the beginning. It sort of precludes. It, it cuts off from the start any way for him to prove himself. Uh, they go ahead and presuppose that Jesus is just a guy and not the Messiah and definitely not God. Uh, One of the big problems with doing that, and this is something we still do today, is that when we write off who Jesus could be from the very beginning, we, we come into conflict with who he really is. And we actually, while we often say that we're on the search for truth, we keep ourselves from this one option, which seems to be the glaring possibility that maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he is what he says he is. Maybe he can do what he says he can do. But no, 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 he can't be the son of God because he's just this guy from Nazareth. We're going to go ahead and presuppose that he's nothing. And then no matter what sort of information is introduced, no matter what sort of teaching he does or what sort of healing he does, we've already ruled out that possibility. So it's gotta be something else. Uh, You may be able to see here, uh, I, I think it's definitely possible that what we could see here is them saying, not only is this just a guy from Nazareth, possibly they're saying something like, Well, he's got to be getting these powers and teachings from somewhere. Maybe he's parroting what he's heard from somebody else, or maybe he's getting this power from some other power other than God. Uh, In the end, it may seem like it's possible as well. These are some sort of exegetical possibilities. It's kind of hard to see exactly what they're saying in their questions. But uh, in the end, they identify him with his mother, Sorry, not in the end, but this is like one big deal. People weren't uh, often identified by being the son of their mother in this culture. Even after their father died, they they would continue to be identified as the son of their father. And so some see here maybe a reference to these people in Nazareth saying, yeah, but remember... This is just that dude whose mom had him out of wedlock. Like, we all kind of, we all know what was going on. That guy can't be the Messiah. And so for all these reasons that they have, for for whatever it is, their familiarity with him, what they know of him and his backstory, they've already written him off. Um, The problem with when we do this today, when we go ahead and write Jesus off from the very beginning when we go ahead and say right at the start that he can't be that, he can't be God, but I can figure out who or what he was by doing some historical searches, well, we've already ruled out one of the most likely answers. We think we can get there through some sort of neutrality. If we apply the right methods, if we're smart enough, we can figure out or determine for ourselves who Jesus is. But the fact is neutrality is a myth. Even if you are potentially open to the idea of Jesus being God, but you're trusting yourself to figure that out and you're not open to his own words or you're not open to the records of uh, his life and character and resurrection, then it's certainly going to be hard to figure out who he is. Because again, neutrality, uh, especially when it comes to God, is a myth. Uh, But see, people do this with the Bible all the time. They say things like, it can't confirm truth because it's biased. It can't tell us who Jesus really was because it was designed to tell us that he's God. But of course, that doesn't quite hold up, right? Uh, Just because something is designed to tell you a, a particular thing doesn't mean that that particular thing is untrue, Um, In seminary, I had a professor who would say uh, things like, bias isn't bad, bad bias is bad, (laughs) right? To come at something with a particular angle, and we're talking about like philosophical bias, uh, not bias toward people. Um, To come at something with a particular angle, right? For the gospels to be written with the end in mind of proving that Jesus is God, the son of God, uh, isn't necessarily bad, right? Uh, You can have an angle and it can possibly be a good angle. Not all angles are bad angles or wrong angles. Not all goals in trying to prove something are bad or wrong. But if we write off who Jesus is from the very start, we'll never end up at the end of actually figuring out who he truly is. And this whole idea of, of kind of casting off Jesus from the very beginning, it, it really can bring us to this question of how do we know the truth? How can we know the truth? But the thing is, for these people in Nazareth, they're looking at Jesus. They're seeing him teach. They've heard of his miracles. And it seems like even in their own town, he has f- healed a few sick people. And again, they're just writing him off and they're saying, but where does he get it from? It can't just be him. Where does he get it from? But of course, if you will go one step back, we know that Jesus was getting it from God. Both his miraculous powers and his teachings were coming from God. But that's the very thing they are denying. And as they begin this search for truth, and continue to push back the one big possible thing, they're sending themselves on a sort of a goose chase. They'll never find the truth. They'll never find a satisfying answer when they refuse to admit what ultimate truth is, even as they are face-to-face with it. So they end up on this sort of goose chase ad absurdum, Right? there's there's no end in sight. If we refuse the ultimate authority of God, there's no way to find out what is true if there's no foundation for what is true. Okay. So maybe one of the big questions we should really be asking from this text is just this. How do any of us believe how do any of us really come to belief? Especially in a, in a world like we live in today, which uh, maybe nobody is really walking around confident of their worldview anymore. That's kind of one of the plagues of our time. I'm not sure that many people walk around like actually really believing that they're going to rise again from the dead one day. Christians, I mean. I, I don't know many people who live their lives in light of that. Do we really believe that? How do any of us come to believe? It seems like it was really hard for these people. Well, uh, one commentator said this in regard to verse 5, uh, where it says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, and that's referring, of course, to their lack of faith being the reason he could do no mighty work there. One commentator says this, God always makes a way. It's not just these people, it's, it's all of us. It's all of us with stubborn hearts who don't want to confess who God is. And yet God makes a way. Even where we deny his power and wisdom, he makes a way in the hard hearts of humans to grant them belief. Um, I'll address that verse really briefly too, just very briefly, by the way. Uh, probably you've heard this verse addressed in like a lot of different ways. Uh, I know a couple years ago, Stephen Furtick said something like, There's, there is one thing that even the Son of God cannot do in relation to, to this passage. Um, and I, don't, I actually don't want to like misinterpret him. I don't know. I didn't ever see that in context. It was one of those things people post on Facebook to hate somebody for a tweet they made, you know? Um, so I don't really know what point he was getting at, but, but I think we've all probably heard explanations like that of this passage. Uh, really simply, people just didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, so they weren't bringing the sick to him. How is he as a human going to heal people who aren't there? It's actually much more practical than we often think about it, right? People in Nazareth didn't believe him, so nobody came to him to be healed. Um, We don't have to find any sort of like mind-altering statement about what we thought we knew about God here. People just weren't coming to him to be healed. Uh, Okay, so one of the other questions we have to address from this is if we refuse to acknowledge God... uh, If we we continue to look at Jesus and just keep asking, isn't he just a guy? Isn't he just some dude? Why do we do that? Um, I'll go ahead and say the text doesn't directly address this, but I think much of the Gospels in general do. And I think we can find this to be true in our own hearts and I know in my own experience, both personally and with others. When we continue to say, but isn't Jesus just a guy? Is he really God? And maybe even we as Christians do this in small ways. Say, isn't he just a guy? Do I really have to listen to him? I think we often find that the reason we want to write Jesus off and not truly confess his person as God And what he's come to do is because we simply don't want to listen to him. We don't want to have to do what he says to do. And yet, despite all that, God makes a way. He convinces hard hearts. He reveals himself in the person of his son. And he meets people like us in our unbelief. Okay, so um, the next question that this answers, that this passage answers, we said it's, can I have it all? Can I follow Jesus and have an easy life? Um, So the reason I'm, I'm asking that question from this passage is this, that What's happening here? Jesus is being rejected. In his own hometown, Jesus is being rejected. Right? He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Uh, Jesus found a lot of followers and disciples wherever he went. And then he comes here and he comes home. And no one will even come to him to be healed. His disciples have followed him in. Did anybody follow him out? Did he pick up any new believers here? Was anybody really convinced? No. They flat out reject Jesus. Uh, The reason I think this presents a question to us, can I have it all, is because Jesus... Told us in John 15, verse 20, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All over the Gospels, we get this idea that if uh, Jesus was persecuted, if Jesus was rejected, if Jesus was disbelieved, his followers will be too. So we shouldn't be surprised when we're rejected. If I'm going to answer the question that I've already asked, can I have it all? The answer simply is no. That's what Jesus has prepared us for. Um, And as we consider this this passage in light of the greater context of Mark that we've talked about a couple of times, uh, this gospel was written to a group of people, likely in Rome, during the early persecutions of the Christian church. So can you imagine how the original audience, these persecuted Christians, are receiving this gospel? How is, how is this coming across, this passage right here, to a bunch of Roman Christians in their little house church, hoping no one finds them on this Sunday morning while they just try to read the gospels and worship God? How does it come across to them that their Lord and Savior was also rejected by his own hometown? Mark, as in the rest of his gospel, is kind of, he's getting at a point. He wants to make disciples, and he wants to encourage ongoing discipleship among those who are in trial. And he's saying, your Savior was persecuted. Your Savior was rejected. You're only following in his footsteps. Of course, this is what would happen. They rejected him. They will reject you too. Uh, Now, look, we've had it easy in the West for a long time as Christians. We've had it really, really easy, actually. Um, And so maybe rejection for us doesn't look quite the same as it did Uh, for Jesus or for the Christians who uh, were first sent this gospel. Uh, But nonetheless, I'm sure it has happened. And maybe you have felt this some in your own life. If not, it will happen to you at some point. That if you follow Jesus, inevitably the rubber hits the road somewhere. There's, There's going to be tension somewhere. From following Christ. There will be some sort of rejection. There will be some sort of uh, breach in relationships or something. Maybe in the nearer or farther future, our country will begin to persecute Christians. We don't know what our future holds collectively, but I can tell you as you follow Christ and stick with him longer, tension will rise in your life. And I'm not trying to, like, paint you all as heroes who are going to go, like, you know, fight your boss at some job and uh, come out victorious or something, right? I'm I'm not trying to say you're going to, like, wage a, a war with, I don't know, some sort of industry that goes against Christian principles or something. That's not necessarily what's going to happen. But you're going to sense, at least in your relationships, maybe even just in your own heart, this tension of following Jesus and what it means to be rejected. Uh, one thing that's important to point out about this is uh, Jesus is rejected for what's really a good message. <laughs> Jesus is rejected for his teaching and healing, and because these people are a bit too familiar with him. They don't really see who he is. Make sure that if you're rejected, you're rejected because of Jesus, not because you're a jerk. Too often, that's been the excuse for Christians in the West. I've, I've been rejected for being a Christian. Maybe you're rejected because you told everyone in your office that they were going to hell because they're, you know, I, you, you could add any number of things to that, right? I'm sure you guys have heard stories. And while maybe even you spoke the truth, the way you speak matters. We don't see Jesus here telling everybody we, we don't really see his message at all, but we know his message. We know his message of coming to save people, of loving people and healing people. If you're going to be rejected as your Savior, make sure you're rejected for the reasons your Savior was. Not for your own grumpiness or your own personality quirks or because you're mad at some politician or some other reason. Make sure it's for the reason that Jesus was rejected. Um, So, as we see, uh, Jesus was rejected. I think maybe one of the questions we need to ask then again is this, going back to Joan Osborne, what if God was one of us? That's kind of exactly what Mark is telling his audience, isn't it? God was one of us. Was that enough? Well, actually, it was just enough. It was just right. That's exactly what we needed. We needed him to be human. Sometimes it seems like skeptics maybe uh, wanted Jesus to be something other than human, but what else would he have been? If he had remained God, I'm sure we could have found a problem with him. By the way, I'm not mad at skeptics. I'm saying like, um, I'm a little skeptical myself sometimes. If, if we had found that God had come down to us as God, we probably would have found ourselves asking, why couldn't he have been more human? Why didn't he enter in to our lives? Why doesn't he understand us? But that's exactly what he did. He does understand us. He did enter into our world. We needed him to be one of us, so he became one of us. He was rejected like one of us. And and ultimately, he was fully rejected. Ultimately, he was put up on the cross and rejected by his nation, by his own people. He did that so that we who are skeptical of him, who want to write him off from the very beginning, could be made right with God. Um, I think the two questions I want to end with then are these. Uh, I mostly addressed skeptics in the first point, and so I want to ask, can skeptics trust the one who was ultimately rejected? Can they trust him enough to become his disciples? If you doubt who he is, and yet you look at him, and you look at him as he is, and you really consider who he is and what he is, do you think you can trust him? And Christians, can you trust the one who was rejected enough to put up with being rejected yourself? I don't know what capacity that's happening in in your life right now, and I'm not trying to paint some grim future of persecution by any means. But it's going to happen on some level. Can you trust the one who was rejected for you? enough to be rejected? Do you believe that you have everything you need in Jesus who, who gave himself for you? Who gave you all that you need with God? Who made it so that nothing is lacking in your relationship with God? Can you find all that you need in him and not have to worry about what comes at you in your relationships or in the world?